And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I want to thank you for joining me for this special podcast. It is the first in a series that will be under the boot camp link and will represent what we consider to be the most important uh, investment decision and concepts that uh, you will have to deal with over the rest of, of your life. And in, in the past, we have started this series focused on what we call the ultimate buy and hold strategy and the purpose of that particular piece. And we've been uh, uh, updating it every year for the last, uh, actually, even before I started the foundation. So it's probably been 25 years almost that we've been doing that. And in that particular session, what I'll focus on is 10 equity asset classes that have a history of of paying a particularly good premium for the risk that you take. Uh, And we do our best to show you how to put that together and the impact it has on both return and risk. But what we haven't done in the past is we haven't focused on this one very large, big decision that first-time investors have to make. I mean, we understand that if we're going to be successful for the long term, we're going to have to save. And we would all understand that it's important that you that you save early in your life, as early as you can, because you have more years to to compound uh, the the value of that portfolio. And the next step that you will take is to make a decision in terms of putting money aside for the long term. Am I going to put it into stocks or am I going to put it into bonds? And what I'd like you to do, if you uh, didn't happen to read the notes uh, about this presentation, I hope that you will uh, download uh, table... J2A and the table J1A. And uh, these two tables uh, include some of the most powerful uh, teaching moments uh, from what I know about the history uh, of investing. And, And my goal, my goal is to have you find a way of thinking about investing that you were able to overcome many of the the hurdles that other people have a difficult time getting over because it is not an easy path. It's going to be kind of a wild ride at times, but I want your eye to be on the long term. Now, we'll talk about the short term. You must be prepared for the short term in this decision, stocks versus bonds. So let me dig into these... Uh, these two tables. And I want to start with table J2A. It's all about bonds. It shows the returns of bonds since 1928. Now, bonds are basically a loan, a guarantee, a promise that if I will loan you some money, that you will give me the money back plus interest And that money may be due, based on what our contract is, in a month. It could be due in a year. It could be due in 30 years. 
And if, let's say, the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond, let's assume that kind of an investment. That means that if I gave the U.S. government $1,000 for that bond, that they're going to pay me some interest from now until they give us back, give me back uh, the entire $1,000. So I don't own a part of the U.S. government. I don't own a part of a corporation when I loan money to them to buy or invest in a bond. But what is really feels good about a bond is that there's very little volatility. In fact, remember the whole concept is the bond of the bond is that there's a guarantee. I guarantee you will make money and you will know exactly what that amount is. Three, four, five percent, whatever uh, the contract calls for. So as I look at table J2A, I see three boxes of numbers. The first upper box of numbers represents the returns of three different kinds of bonds. Now, I'm not going to give you a one-hour lecture on how bonds work, but I'll make it as simple as I can. There are bonds that when you buy a bond, it is going to mature and you're going to get your money back very quickly. And so if you do that with the U.S. government, what you see here in the column that says short-term government bond, uh, this is a bond that in this particular case matures every 30 days. And if you look at the worst year since 1928, There was one year that in owning that bond, you actually lost a very little bit, two one-hundredths of one percent. And there was a year that you made 14.7 percent. And of course, that year that you made 14.7 percent, obviously, uh, interest rates were very high. But it's a very, very low-risk government bond or treasury bill, uh, and it's our U.S. government saying, I promise. And they've never defaulted. And so the interest rate is very, very low. And what we know is, if we go back this 96 years to 1928, the compound rate of return, sometimes lower than, sometimes more than, but the average compound rate of return was 3.3%. And I want you to notice in the table that if you had put $100 into that kind of bond and you you kept renewing it every time they paid you back, you you bought more and you just kept it going for 96 years, your $100 would have grown to $2,172. Now, that is the impact of a 3.3% compound rate of return. And that's an important number, as is the $2,172, because that was, over 96 years, what somebody would have gotten had they just kept their money in that short-term kind of a bond. Now, if you instead loan the government money 
for a longer term, like five to seven years, what would be what they call an intermediate term government bond, the interest rate would have been higher. Instead of 3.3, it's 4.9. Now, why would that be? Well, the longer the maturity, the higher the interest needs to be to attract the money. Because when you go out five years or seven years, or in a minute will go out 30 years, you, you don't know what's going to happen between now and then because once you buy that bond, interest rates will go up and down. And as they go up and down, the daily value of the bond will go down and up. And so the point is, is that there's more volatility on a daily basis in the value of that intermediate term bond because it's not going to mature and get your money back, let's say, for five years. And you'll notice that when you do get the higher compound rate of return, 4.9 versus 3.3, that your $100 would have grown to 9541 and if you were willing to tie your money up for even longer periods of time, the compound rate of return for long-term government bonds, 5.2%. You see, every time the maturity becomes longer and there's more period of the unknown outcome of that particular uh, purchase that you've made, not only is there higher volatility day to day, but you also expect to get a higher return. And it is interesting because it's, in a way, the same thing with stocks. There are little different reasons, or big different reasons, why there's more volatility with stocks. But there is, as you take more risk, you get a higher return. Go down and, and buy CDs at your local bank, and you'll see it right away. You get a higher rate of return when the maturity is five years from now than when it's three months from now. And we know that you do take some short-term risk. As a matter of fact, the worst one year for intermediates was a loss of 9.4%. In the case of long-term governments, a loss of 26.1%. So from the day you buy a bond until you get paid back all the money you put in, the value can go up and down. Again, because interest rates are going up and down. So if you are going to put money aside let's say for the sake of discussion as we go through this, uh, uh, this exercise here in this podcast, let's just assume that for 40 years you put away $6,000 a year and you put the money into the, uh, one of these bonds, and let's assume that you went for the longer-term bond, and I'm going to show you that, it's, that the average 40-year period here is a little higher than what you've just, we've just talked about, but let's say you made 6%. And if you made 6% on bonds, you would be in a very low-risk investment. 
And at the end of 40 years, it would be worth almost a million dollars, which sounds really good. The bad news is, at least looking backwards, is that the inflation over time eats away at the purchasing power of the money that you have. So if, for example, 40 years ago, you started putting this money away, and if, in fact, inflation was 3% a year, now it happened to be more than 3%, but if you go all the way back to 1928, it's about 3% that the purchasing power declines every year. So your 984,000, which is what it is, almost a million, will have, have, have not given you, if you took out 4% a year, would give you 40,000. That's the good news. That would be good today. But, and get this, but it would take $130,000 to replicate that 40000 based on 3% inflation over a 40-year period. You are going to need more than that, or you are going to have to keep working for a very long time. And this is the problem with bonds. The good news is they're very, very safe in the short term. The bad news is because they're so safe, they don't pay very much. And so in order to get the kind of return that we need, we have to take another level of risk. And in fact, that level of risk is very high on a short-term basis. But the good news is, based on history, over the long term, it is actually very low. And before I turn the sheet over here and we look at the, the other tables, uh, what I do uh, want to do is to make sure that you understand all of the information that we have about investing from the past. We can call it real. We know what happened. The problem is, whether we're talking about stocks or bonds, and we'll talk about stocks in just a second, we don't know about the future. And when we loan that money to the U.S. government or we loan that money to Microsoft or some corporation so they can build their businesses, when we loan it, it is an act of faith because the guarantee of a government, the guarantee of a corporation, is that things will be okay in the future. You may have somebody in your family who owns a Confederate bond. Well, they may have some value as a collector's item, but you you aren't going to be able to cash in and get your uh, and, and get your value out of that bond because they defaulted. And so, faith is a very important part of this whole process. And as we leave the safety of people saying, I guarantee what you do when you go to table J1A is you enter the world of, I will give my best efforts. I will run this company and you will be a shareholder in this company. And while I will not guarantee you that I will pay you anything, 
I'm going to work to make you and the other shareholders money, and I will benefit because I'll be paid big bucks to do it, and I will benefit because I will have an option on shares, and if the value of the stock goes up from 50 to, to, to 200 over the years, I will get rich by having done a good job for you. You will have made a lot of money because together with your investment and our work, we made the company grow. Now, that's the good news, is that's the attitude. Now, some people aren't probably so uh, sincere, and um, maybe they don't work so hard. Maybe some of these people are even crooks. Maybe some of these people do try hard, but things don't work out. And the truth is, the truth is that over the last 96 years, about half of the companies that became public companies are no longer public companies. Most of those either didn't make any money in the end, uh, and they got merged away into some other company, or they went bankrupt. So one of the reasons that, as I think you probably already know, that we want you to own a mutual fund that may own 500 to 5,000 different companies so that you don't have to worry about the companies going bankrupt that are uh, part of your portfolio. But even when you have 5,000 companies in that portfolio, you still have a lot of daily risk, annual risk, monthly risk, decade risk. And I'll talk about that to give you an idea of what that could look like. But as you'll notice, we have three tables here. One, the first table, is looking at that same 96-year period from 1928 to 2023. And the academics have tracked all of the public companies uh, that existed starting in 1928 and were added along the way. And then once they, they went bankrupt, then that part of the money was lost. Uh, but, and so they've tracked the return as closely as they can. And so you'll see here in the top box, the one-year periods, that you have USLCB. LCB stands for large cap blend. These are basically large companies, very large companies in the United States uh, that are public, and here what they're tracking as the index uh, uh, of that particular group, they're tracking what would be a lookalike of the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index. Now, it's theoretical uh, prior to 1957, and there wasn't a real 500 index fund until 1976 that people could invest in. And that was designed, developed by John Bogle of the Vanguard family. But we have these constructed portfolios so that we can see about what it would have been worth. And what we know is that if you put $100, now 
I, we cannot forget here for a second that when we talked about those bonds, that $100 in the short-term bonds grew to 2172 in the intermediate-term bonds, 9541 and the long-term bond, the more risky, 12474 So again, higher risk, higher return, but now we're going to take that risk in these large companies. And by the way, they're generally well-known companies. They're, they're huge. And what we know is that that particular group of companies, including the companies that didn't make it, compounded at 10% a year. Now, I made a big deal a few minutes ago about 3.3% being the compound rate of return of those short-term government bonds, treasury bills. So here we have a return that is three times approximately that of the, uh, of the bills. And yet, the $100, instead of growing to a little over 2000 would have grown to $948,000. And that's because you made about 6% more per year. And because that money is compounding and building upon itself, just that difference from going from 3.3 to 10 is the difference between 2,000 and almost a million. And look at this. This is a better return, by the way, than the bonds. But look at the volatility. You'll see here under LCB, long, large cap blend stocks, that the best year was a gain of 54%. And the worst year was a loss of 43. Now, those are calendar years. And I can tell you, when we look outside of the calendar years, even in the period from 2000 through 2009, there were two periods that the market went down 50%. So this is not a slam dunk on a short-term basis. It's just the opposite. You are putting your money, when you buy a mutual fund that owns these 500 companies, you can do that, the S&P 500. You can do it at Vanguard or Fidelity or T a whole bunch of places. But the bottom line is, is that you have the exposure to a lot of short-term volatility. Now, I want you just to look at the next box down at LCB. This is looking at the 82 15-year period since 1928. All of a sudden, the average 15-year period was higher, 10.7. And, and the best was a gain of 18.9 versus 54. And the worst was a gain of 0.6 versus a loss of 43.3 for the worst year. So what happens is over time, the market returns get closer together. And in going through their good times and bad, you still, over 15 years, basically broke even. But I want you to drop down one more box 
because when we drop down to the all the the 57 40 year periods the best 40 year period was 12.5 the worst was a gain of 8.9 in other words if i'm talking to college kids about what they should be doing when they go out into the labor force and start making money and by the way if I had the ability to talk to the high school kids that aren't going uh, to, 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 to uh, college, but they're going right to work, I'd want them to understand the same thing. Putting your money in bonds for the long term, it's not that it's bad because it's very, very safe. But the, the return for the risk of short-term volatility over the long term is huge because we we can see that uh, the average compound the average 40 year compound rate of return for large cap blend has been 11%. So you would think well you are highly likely to get someplace in between 8.9 and 12.5 if you invest for the long term now i'm 80 years old i do not have 40 years but the people i'm investing for do and so i even have a major part of we my wife and i of our portfolio in stocks but this is, this large cap blend, in a way, is kind of like those short-term bonds. It, it, it's the, the lower risk level of investing in the stock market. The because the companies are, well, they're pretty good companies. Uh, they, they, they have to, all of these public companies have to disclose how they're doing on a regular basis. Uh, they, they, they can't, uh, sometimes they do try to hide the bad news, but there's limits. So the, the market will adjust the value of these companies over time. And, um, and what we know is, at least in the past, remember I said, this is a faith-based business. And just like you have to have faith that the government will pay you back for those bonds, you have to have faith in essence, that the capitalistic system survives. Because could it could it melt down like 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 well like Japan did? Japan was uh, the best market back in the the uh, about 1990, uh, and then it became one of the worst markets for ever since then. It it has fought to get evens since 1990. That's a long period of, uh, of, of trying to get back to where you were. Now, by the way, I got to tell you, it was way overvalued in 1990. Remember we had that great big uh, uh, technology boom in the late 90s? And the market went sky high and companies went for sometimes 100, 500, even 1,000 times earnings. Well... Guess what? In Japan, at the peak, it was literally three times what the peak was in the U.S. in that technology boom. So there's always this risk that's out there. Now, what we do know here 
is that there's a premium for the risk that you take. In the short term, you're going to have some difficult times. Uh, in the long term, you're likely, very likely, high probability. I mean, you compare so many people are counting on winning the lottery in order to, 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 have, to build their retirement. And the odds are 300 million to one that you're going to win. Well, if you invest your money in broadly diversified portfolios, index funds with low expenses and all the good things, and if you do it inside of a Roth IRA, for example, where all the earnings are compounding absolutely tax-free, boy, you are on a winner's path as far as I'm concerned. But nobody says, like with bonds, we guarantee. Now, there's something else on this page that is worth knowing. Because now we know that stocks are better for the long term. They're not more risky. Long term, they're less risky than bonds. And so literally, if you put that, that, that $6,000 uh, away uh, over that same 40-year period, you would have about $4 million dollars when you retire, and then you'll live off of that money, and hopefully it will grow a little bit beyond what you take out of it to live on, and then you live 30 years in retirement, and from that $6,000 a year over that 40-year period, you will have either taken out or left over $10 million. That is not the promise but that is the probability. Now, there's something else on this page in table J1A. And that is that there's other columns other than large cap blend. See, large cap blend is made up of some great companies, typically recognized by the public and investors as growth companies, but there are also value companies in that S&P 500. And the value companies, they're good companies, but they're not the hot shots uh, maybe in the information age. They may be uh, making consumer products. That, uh, maybe there are any number of kinds of businesses that would not be seen as cutting edge but are part of our life. So, what do we know about those companies that are value companies? We know they're out of favor. We know that people don't get as excited about those companies. We know they tend to be lower priced for the earnings they make. And we also know that historically they make a better rate of return because they're better companies? No, because they are more risky and because people don't pay as much for them and people who take the risk historically have gotten a better return. Now, I know to some that will sound backwards. Wouldn't the growth companies make more than the value companies? Yes, some do. Yes, certainly. But as a group, those out-of-favor companies have been a great investment. By the way, not all the time. So when I look at the next box, next to LCB, I see LCV. 
These are the large companies, many of them in the S&P 500 and others, that are out of favor, that are selling for lower price to earnings. People are not willing to pay up for those companies because their, uh, their future is not necessarily as bright, but still good. And what we know is, as we look at the upper box, we know that the compound rate of return of the LCV, large cap value, was 11% instead of 10. Now, an extra 1% is a big deal. It's huge. In fact, you can see that. You can see that over that 96-year period, the $100, which had grown to about $950,000 in LCB, is $2.3 million in large cap value. Whoa. I mean, that sounds to me, if I thought that the highs and the lows and the volatility and, and all of that would be similar, I, I might want to have some of that in my portfolio. Well, I will tell you, you don't have to have it in your portfolio, but if you do there is a probability that you'll be paid a premium for that. And what do we know about that? If we look at the best one year, up 92.5%. Remember, the S&P 500 was up 54. So the best year was almost twice as much. But the worst year was down 61. So down more in the bad times, up more in the good times. And you got paid a premium for sitting on something, investing in something that has more volatility. Now, remember, I am not recommending that you put your money into individual companies that are out of favor. In fact, the academics say that is not the right thing to do because more of those companies do fail in the long term. So, what do we know about that range of returns as we look out 15 years? We see that in the middle box, and we can see in large cap value that the average 15-year return, instead of 10.7, as it was with the S&P, is 12.7. 2% more. 2% more. And the best 15 years was a gain of 21.7, but there was also a 15-year period that it lost 0.6% compounded over the 15 years. So you took more risk, and you had periods that were worse to the downside. But if you follow our guidance, we wouldn't want you to have all your money in large cap value. We wouldn't be upset if you decided to split it between large cap blend and large cap value. That might make some sense. It doesn't happen to be one of the portfolios we recommend, but if you did that, I don't think that'd be a bad idea. Look at the 40-year period down in the bottom box. The large cap value now instead of the 11% compound rate of return, is 13.4. And we're talking about a lot more money in your family's pocket, in your pocket, 
in the charities you care about, their pocket. And if you follow the guidance, and we're talking millions, 12 simple ways to supercharge your retirement, you know I want you to be in no-load mutual funds. You know I want you to be in index funds with large, very massively broad diversification and low taxes. I want you to do everything you can that's in your best interest. And certainly considering Broadening your portfolio beyond just the S&P 500 is one thing you can do. But we haven't even touched where the big returns are yet because go back to the top of the page. We have U.S. SCB, small cap blend. It's a combination of small cap growth companies, small cap uh, value companies, and whereas the companies in the S&P 500 might be worth over $100 billion on average, the companies in the small cap blend category will be possibly two and a half to $6 billion. Much smaller companies. They're still legitimate public companies, but they're just not huge. They could be on the way up or they could be on the way out. Getting smaller or getting larger. But again, we're talking about owning them all, not trying to buy the best ones. Because the people who try to buy the best ones, history shows, don't do as well as the people who own them all. But what I see is, see, we're, we're taking more risk. How do I know we're taking more risk? Well, I can see the losses are, 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 are big. The gains are bigger. The gains, the best year was up 111.2%. The worst year on the downside was down 48.3. And then, and by the way, notice, please, the $100 that grew to 950000 with the S&P 500 and $2.3 million with large cap value is now up to $4.8 million from $100. Now, you may think nobody's ever going to have an investment in any of these in, in asset classes, we call them, over 96 years. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue with you because my wife and I, when our, our granddaughter was born, a little over a year, about a year and a half ago, we invested money for her for the rest of her life. And if she lives to be 96, then the odds are she will. But the actuaries, actuarials say today uh, is that the uh, average, about 50% of people born today in the U.S. will live to be 103 or more. So it's possible there are people who could actually see their money grow from $100 to $4.9 million if they didn't spend it. Well, we hope she spends it, but we also hope she leaves some for others. But you'll notice now you're up to 11.9% compound rate of return. When we go down to the small cap blend in the 15-year average, it's 13.4%, so we've gained another 7 tenths of 1% over large cap value. 
And now the worst and best 15 is a gain of 23.2 is the best, and a gain of 1.6% a year for 15 years was the worst. And once we get out to the 40-year period, and there are 57 of them, the best was a for a small cap blend was 16.7 and the worst was 10.6. Those are both gains, by the way. No losses there, all gains. So would we think it's a bad thing to add some of that to your portfolio? Certainly not. Might only be a small part. But if you were only going to put a small part in small cap, we probably wouldn't suggest that you put it in small cap blend. We'd probably recommend that you look at small cap value. Now remember what value is out of favor, not the hot shots, people not willing to pay much for them. Historically, the average, well, let's just go to the top. For the 96-year period, compound rate of return of 13.2. Now, I don't have any expectation you're going to get 13.2. For one reason, people didn't even know about small cap value as an investable kind of thing to do. Didn't have mutual funds that did it back then. But the companies existed. And it surprises people that these companies were that profitable had made that much money. It wasn't something people knew about uh, until, what, 30 years ago. Now, what we, what, we, what we do know, we do know that in 1926, people did not understand that stocks made more money than bonds. That was a surprise to people. So it's not surprising to me that there are things that our people are learning about today that they, didn't not, they did not know about before. And in many cases, it's because nobody brought our attention to it. Think of the impact that John Bogle has had on the world, actually, with his index funds. We didn't know what an index fund was. And now there are more index fund dollars being saved every day than people in actively managed funds, which is what we all believed you should be in back in the 1960s. So what do I see with large small cap value? I see historically a compound rate of 13.2%. The best year was a gain of almost 125%. The worst year was a loss of 55.4%. And once we get out to the 15-year periods, the best was a 15-year compound rate of return of 265 and the worst was uh, 1.9% loss, loss. So there's more risk in small cap value. It's one reason why we often recommend people, even young people, just put 10 or 20% in. We try to make the case that having 50% small cap value and 50% in the S&P 500 is a legitimate thing to do for the long term. Notice that the 
small cap value, average 15-year return was 15.5. And when we go out to 40 years, the average 40-year return is 16.1. Now again, my belief is the future is probably going to be more like 12 to 13. And there's lots of evidence for that so far. Now, I'm hoping that you'll you'll stay the course and 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 listen to the other eight or nine podcasts I'm going to do over the next couple of months because I want you to know a lot more about these asset classes and how to put them uh, together. But the main thing is is to build your knowledge about the history of these asset classes so that somehow you can build inside of you the faith to stay the course. That's the challenge. There's no challenge for people to invest in the market when it's going up. In fact, that's when most people put money in the market, when it's up, not when it's down. Of course, what we want you to do is to dollar cost average every month as a, as a saver before you retire. Dollar cost averaging in every month, regardless of whether the market is high or low. Do not let the volatility of the market change your plan. Because if you do, you are more than likely from everything we know about the past to make less money. Now, when I look at the best 40-year period for small cap value, 19% compound rate of return, the worst, a gain of 11.6. So you would not be shocked that my wife and I, in the part of our portfolio that is in equities, is 25% small cap value. Are we taking more risk there than we would if we were in large cap blend in the S&P 500? Sure. Yes. As a matter of fact, inside the S&P 500, there are some stocks that will really do very well and other stocks that won't do so well. That's the way it works. And there'll be times when small cap is very good and large cap isn't. Boy, when you see there, there's a table, it's one of the last things that we'll do in, in this series, just because it's a lot of work for Daryl to do, and he hasn't, hasn't gotten it done yet, but I know he will. And that's the quilt charts, where we make it possible for you to look at every year since 1928, how did small cap value do every year? compared to large cap blend, compared to large cap value, to small cap blend. I want you to know as much as any advisor knows about how the market performs. It is not complex. The bottom line you have to know is nobody, nobody knows what's going to be best next. Nobody. And for long periods of time, 20 years, bonds can do better than stocks, okay? So nobody, 
knows. So what do I know here? And I'm looking back up at that uh, first box at the top of the page of table J1A. I see the $100. Remember, the bonds grew from about the $100 grew to over 2000 to over 12000 There was three of them. They had ranges between 2000 and 12000 at the end of 96 years. Here we have a range of 950000 to $14.8 million. I mean, that's that, by the way, even if you only got, if you don't, if you can't do this 96 years, I understand. I can't either. But boy, when I, all of my, our kids, all of our kids are, are, are all equities in their iris. And we'll be talking about that too, the implications of all equities for the rest of your life. I am not recommending that, but we will be talking about it. To the right of these four major asset classes are three simple combinations of those four. One looks at 25% in each, called the U.S. 4 Fund. One is just in the small and the large cap value. And the other is in the 50-50 S&P 500 and small cap value. And you are going to see a whole bunch more information about the returns of these three portfolios and six others uh, in the coming uh, pieces that we do on, on our, uh, what we call the sound investing portfolios. And we'll be showing you returns and risk uh, on an annual basis of all these different combinations. Uh, and uh, we showed annual, we showed decades, we show uh, how often they're up, how often they're down, everything that we can think of that will help you become more knowledgeable. Because you got to remember, whatever you decide to do with your money, and in the beginning, when you don't have much, Nobody's going to particularly care about you because they can't make any money off of you of any, of any meaningful amount. But I can tell you, when you've got 50000 then and 100000 and 500000 and a million, and $5 million, because if you are a decent saver and, uh, and a decent earner, you are going to have these amounts of money because the programs are there to do them today. They weren't there for, for, for people my age. We didn't have an IRA. We didn't have a 401k. We didn't have a Roth 401k where, or, or IRA where we could put money away and eventually when we have whatever millions we have, we could take money out tax-free. No, we didn't have that. You do. And you have the ability, because you're learning this information, to start early. And by the way, for those of you who know all of this and are just patiently listening because you're on a walk or something, my hope is you're going to share it in the rest of this series with friends and, and folks at the office that you think 
would benefit from this information because the whole purpose of all of this is to help you make better decisions. So right now I'm thinking of the probably 100 decisions you're going to make. Some of them are very small. Some of them are very large. This decision, stocks versus bonds, is the difference between maybe having a million dollars at the end of your saving career and then not having enough to even retire when you would like to have retired versus having literally $10 million. That is, that is not out of the question. And the decision you will have made is that you will have decided to have the majority, if not all, of the money in your 20s, in your 30s, maybe in your 40s, all in equities. Now, we certainly understand the idea of taking an off-ramp and starting to add bonds when you're 40. A lot of people do that. We'll be talking about target date funds. Target date funds do that. But I'm just saying that I'm hoping that you're going to have some equities, lots when you're young, and maybe even quite a few when you're 80, that this will pay you and your family handsomely. So you know how to get a hold of me with questions, paul at paulmerriman.com. Uh, what we're building here uh, under the boot camp is this series of new recordings uh, to, to bring people up to date on all of our strategies and and, uh, and for people who are just coming aboard, make sure they get all the latest information. Uh, and, and, and we will uh, have videos on all of these topics as well, but I want to have them with uh, uh, Chris uh, and, and Daryl because they, and I think they add so much to any conversation. And there are people who will watch a video and they won't listen to a podcast uh, and we'll have an article on each one of these. Uh, and, and so you'll have a page that will be dedicated to what I'm talking about today, the decision, equities versus fixed income. And then we'll have a page that will be all about the different equity asset classes you could have. And then we'll have a page that will have a video, article, podcast, about all the portfolios and the risk. And then we'll have a page of how much you might want to put into bonds eventually. And then we'll have a page that talks about how to get the money to work in these things, asset classes. Then we'll have a page on taking money out in retirement. And we're going to have a whole bunch of pages, each one of them focusing on something that we believe is at a minimum a million-dollar decision, at an absolute minimum. And in this case today, literally, if you as a first-time investor, in fact, I'm hoping, I am hoping that you, if you don't have the money to be able to take advantage of the new 401k match that you might be walking into, or if you're somebody in your teens and your parents are generous enough to either give you money as a match or to match whatever you make in your IRA, Roth IRA, and get that baby going now, 
I hope all of this information is important in your financial future. So keep listening, keep sharing, and keep asking. And we do not uh, ask anything of you. We do appreciate it when you pass this information along. If you haven't read, we're talking millions in the in the in the notes with this uh, podcast. We'll have a link to a free PDF. And my hope is you're going to read it and then you're going to send it on. You might even send it to your teacher who may be teaching this this kind of material. And this might be helpful to other students in your class. And uh, that's what you can do for us. Uh, a few people, but but important to us, are kind enough to share part of their wealth with us and make don- donations to uh uh, to our our cause, but but it is our intent to, to keep this uh, at no cost to you, in the hopes that at least you will share it with others, so that we help more people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.